uh, and it's verses 32 to 36. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the, at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Here ends today's lesson. Thanks, Trevor, and uh, good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name's Jacob. I'm uh, a student minister here at the branch. Um, yeah, like you said, Trevor, a very short passage, but a powerful passage of God's Word. If you're wondering what we're doing with a, a random sermon on the book of Acts tucked between two series, uh, just so you know, it's part of my study requirements to uh, preach and be evaluated on sermons from every genre of the Bible over the next few years. So that's what this is about, being graciously given a pulpit. Uh, but before we get into God's Word, let's pray together. Great God and Heavenly Father, we uh, are conscious of our need of your Spirit to be with us this morning. Uh, Lord, to help me teach your Word, to help all of us uh, hear and understand your Word. Uh, your Spirit gives us insight and understanding, conviction, uh, and most of all, uh, lifts our eyes to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do that for us this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name. I mean, uh, well, it's probably safe to say that one of the most common objections, or one of the, the objections that people have to Christianity, is the church. I had a colleague uh, when I was a social worker who I used to talk to a bit about spiritual things, and she used to say, she said it a few times, something that I think is a pretty common sentiment. She said to me, Jacob, I've got no problem with God, but I've just got no time for the church. And in some instances, from an outsider's perspective at least, you can kind of sympathise with that position. The church over the ages and even today has been guilty of some of the worst hypocrisies, terrible abuses... But even in the absence of those things, there are still people who, who just don't like church. Maybe that's you. Maybe you find church really uninspiring. Maybe you have a hard time coming here and engaging with people because you just feel like you've got nothing in common with them. Maybe church just doesn't live up to your hopes. And so you find it easier just to, to not involve yourself at all. That's the reality for some people. It's reality for some people even here this morning, I'm sure. Church isn't all that it could be, and it can turn people off. But in the, the short little passage of Acts that we just read, 
we get a little window into the life of the early New Testament church that's deeply instructive for us. It holds up kind of a model of church life that we can aspire to and pray for. If, by the grace of God, we could look something like this early church, there would be something attractive about that, something that that didn't turn people off, but actually drew people in. But this window into the, the early church actually presents a challenge for us as well. It's a challenge to all of us, and particularly those of us who would be quick to sit back and criticise church and not involve ourselves too deeply. We have here a description of the church that's both winsome and attractive, but also challenging. It's kind of like a call to action. So let's look at three things about this early church that we can learn from. The first thing that we read about this early church is that they were one in heart and mind. One in heart and mind. It's quite a short but powerful statement that uh, means a few things. To be one in heart and mind speaks to a certain uh, closeness of relationships, friendships, love between believers, commitment to one another. To be one in heart and mind uh, means to be on the same page about important truths, to, to have the same convictions, to believe the gospel together, to share a common faith in the same Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection and, and all the implications that come along with those events. And to be one in heart and mind, uh, we'll see particularly in the next point, means, means a oneness of purpose, to not only believe the gospel but to be committed together to the cause of the gospel, kind of like a a group of soldiers have a a common objective, working and serving as one, the early church worked and served as one to proclaim Jesus and live for him. The early church was, was one in heart and mind. Which is quite remarkable because we're not talking about a small group of people. Uh, In verse 4 of chapter 4, we read that the number of believers, and we're in Jerusalem at this point still, uh, is about 5,000 men. So that's not including women and children. So you've got a big group of people, and they came from all over the place. So in Acts chapter 2 and the the day of Pentecost, there were people in Jerusalem that had come from uh, every nation, tribe and tongue, we read, uh, from far and wide for the Feast of Harvest, and lots of them became believers and they then stayed in Jerusalem for a while uh, to be taught and built up. So we've got in the picture here a big multinational group of believers who'd only known each other for a short time, we're talking weeks, possibly a couple of months, and they're described as being one in heart and mind. It's quite remarkable. And as a kind of evidence of that oneness... We read that no one claimed any of their possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. That doesn't mean that the early church kind of mandated that you sell all your stuff as a condition of entry. No, what we see in verse 34 is it was as the needs arose from time to time. People in this early community of believers were so committed to each other that they voluntarily sold their stuff so they could help out others who were in need. It's possible that those needs arose because it was kind of a bit of a a nomadic community, people who had come from other parts of the world, living in Jerusalem for a time, uh, needed a helping hand. 
But this community was extremely generous. You see, people sold land and houses. We read in verse 36 of Joseph, uh, called Barnabas, a son of encouragement. He sold a field and gave the proceeds to the apostles. And the question for us is, how much of this do we take on board? If we're going to say that, yes, this early church is a model for us, something to aspire to, does that mean that then we ought to be selling all our stuff and and putting it in the common coffers? One of the things we need to ask when we're reading a narrative part of the Bible like Acts is, is what we're reading descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it simply describing events as they happened or is it prescribing a certain kind of action or behaviour? And one of the ways to answer that question is to, to look to other parts of the Bible to see if the kind of behaviour that's being described in the narrative is kind of reinforced or commanded in other parts of the Bible. And the answer to that in our case this morning, strictly speaking, is no. There's no specific commands for all Christians to sell everything and and give everything they have to the poor. But the principle of loving generosity is definitely there. So in Matthew 10, verse 8, Jesus simply says, Freely you have received, freely give. And 1 Timothy 6, verse 18, Command those who are rich among you to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And 1 John 3.17, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The principle is clear, it's there. It's okay to have material possessions, it's okay to be rich even, but we're commanded to share our wealth, to be rich towards our brothers and sisters, especially as we see people in need. The principle of generous giving is there and it stems at least partly from the reality that the church is one. So places like 1 Corinthians 12 that Cam opened up for with us, it tells us that the church is one body with many members. If part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. If part of the body is poor and needy and down and out, then the other parts chip in and help out, share some of their wealth and and in doing so they share in their suffering. It's kind of an all-in scenario. The church is a group of people meant to be one in heart and mind and one of the expressions of that oneness is our generosity to each other. You can see that that's an attractive picture, right? You can see how someone would want to be a part of that. Outsiders looking in would say there's something about that that's very attractive. We all want to belong. We want to be known and loved. Loneliness is a massive epidemic in Western cultures. The UK has got a government minister for loneliness That's how big of an issue it is. 
We want to belong. We want to be known and loved. We want to know that if we're struggling, that we'll be looked after. Churches at their best provide for some of our deepest human needs. And those needs do come up. People find themselves out of work. They need a hand financially. Maybe not as dire in our kind of Western welfare states, but those needs do come up. And how wonderful that, that even in this church, we've got wealthy people who have given money to others who are struggling. We've got business owners who have helped people out with jobs. And in our global age, we've seen this morning, we can become aware of the needs of brothers and sisters all over the world as well. We have the opportunity to express our oneness with believers from the Middle East and Africa and South Asia, all over the world. We can express our oneness with them by giving financially towards their needs, which are desperate needs in some instances. But even beyond the realm of finances, we see other needs that come up as well. We see beautiful expressions of oneness right here in this church. I don't know if you've noticed over the years, but something I've seen a fair bit of in Launceston uh, is that it's quite a transient community. So we've had people come here and stay for two or three years for work or study or whatever it might be. People from other parts of the country, other parts of the world, and they come here, they've got no family or friends. And how wonderful it's been for us as a church family to be like their family when they're in Launceston. We can be one with them. And they can be one with us during their time here. Just speaking personally for a second, Caitlin and I uh, welcomed Jonah into the world seven weeks ago. And the amount of people that have come out of the woodwork and given us gifts and dropped off meals, it's been seven weeks. I reckon I can count on one hand the amount of times we've had to cook dinner. Amazing expression of oneness, something which we so thankful and grateful for. I wanted to express that this morning. And Pete and Emily Young from our 4pm congregation, they've only been in Launceston for oh, less than two years, I think, and they've found the exact same thing, welcoming their uh, daughter Tess into the world. And you have to say that's pretty unique. There are young families that come to our Thursday morning playgroup, little buddies, who literally have no family or friends in Launceston. And so then playgroup kind of becomes a chance to to show them, to talk to them about what a loving, close community can look like. You can see how that's attractive. A great advertisement for the gospel. Jesus says, By this people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's as we express our love and unity, it shows off the fact that we are followers of Jesus. But to do that comes at a cost. And here's the challenge. It comes at the cost of regularly forsaking our own individual interests, desires, time, money, for the sake of other people. Romans 12 verse 5 tells us that in Christ, though we are many, we form one body... And listen to this, each member belongs 
to all the others. I belong to all of you. If you're here this morning and you're part of this church, you're not your own, you belong to the other people here. It's quite an extraordinary thing to grasp, isn't it? And surely, surely that brings with it a certain level of mutual obligation. It's tempting and easy to to just want to live comfortable lives, to not get too involved, because it is difficult for lots of genuine reasons. It is difficult to involve ourselves deeply in the life of the church. But if we're serious about this one in heart and mind business, then sometimes that means getting over ourselves. Because we belong to each other. We're one. It can be tempting to spend our lives chasing after nice things. Our world is fixated on having nice stuff. Going on nice holidays. Owning nice homes. Big homes. Investment homes. We can easily get sucked into that. Again, not that there's anything wrong with owning nice things or nice homes. But if that comes at the cost of not allowing room for generosity and costly giving, then that's something we need to think about. The early church was marked by their radical generosity, selling land and homes to give to people in need. I wonder what what would that look like for us? No one's telling us to sell our homes. If you want to do that, then great. But just to get really practical, we've got tax time coming up. Lots of us, uh, hopefully, don't get a tax bill, but lots of us look forward to a bit of a healthy tax return, a few grand to put towards a holiday or put into the mortgage or something. What about this year doing something crazy and, and giving your tax return away? Giving it to, to some of the brothers or sisters we've heard about over the last couple of weeks. Not because you're commanded to or because there's any obligation on you to do it, but because you want to. Because you've received so much in Jesus, the Son of God, eternally rich, had it all, and gave it all up, became poor for our sake. And it's as we grasp that that we, we want to give more away as well. The early church was one in heart and mind and that expressed itself through radical generosity. But the early church was about more than that. And we touched on it briefly earlier. It was also a community with a clear purpose. That's the second thing we notice about this community that it was boldly committed to proclaiming Jesus. In verse 33 of chapter 4, we read that with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In the lead-up to the passage that we read, what had happened is Peter and John had been arrested and put in jail by the religious leaders of the day, and they'd been threatened for doing the exact thing that we read that they're doing here threatened because they'd been testifying about Jesus. 
The religious leaders who arrested them were opposed to Jesus. They were opposed to the gospel. It was offensive to them. So they threatened Peter and John and they ordered them, don't speak about Jesus anymore. Just don't do it. So what did they do? The church got together and they prayed that they would be enabled by God to go on speaking with boldness. And here in verse 33, we we get an answer to that prayer. The apostles continued to testify to Jesus' resurrection with great power. This was a church that was boldly committed to the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were sold out on the reality that Jesus died on a cross to pay for the sins of anyone who would believe in him. They couldn't stop speaking about the fact that he had risen again. And they were committed to calling people to turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus for salvation. And if you're here today and that's something that you haven't done yet, then I want to say that that call is going out to you today as well. Jesus came into the world to die and rise again to save you from sin and from the judgment of God if you would turn and believe in him. If you haven't done that, then the call to do that is going to you today. This is the message that radically shaped the early church. The good news about Jesus is what gathered them together. They were devoted to learning about him, testifying, speaking about him. And you might think that that's a pretty obvious thing for a church to be on about. But in the face of opposition and threats, how easy and tempting it would have been to just stop talking about Jesus or distort or water down his message, cut off the offensive bits, We see that happening today. We see people, whole denominations doing that. As we've seen, there's aspects of church life that will be attractive and winsome for people, but there's also aspects of what the church believes that are just downright offensive to people. There's a reason why this early church needed to pray for boldness. The pressure, the, the threats they were facing, they were real. The opposition was coming their way because people found their message offensive and dangerous. We continue to see that today all over the world. We see it even in our context these days that there's not just apathy towards Christianity like there might have been 30 or 40 years ago, but increasingly there's growing hostility. Our beliefs aren't just seen as kooky and weird, but they're seen as dangerous and harmful to people. That pressure is real. I wonder if you feel it. The pressure is real. So to continue to be a witness for Jesus requires boldness. It requires bold leaders but it also requires boldness from from all of us to even out yourself as a christian in the workplace these days it does require a measure of boldness to tell your neighbor that you went to church on sunday that requires a little bit of bravery to bring up spiritual things in conversation to want to talk about jesus with people 
that requires guts. And to get really into the realities of sin and judgment and hell, that requires extreme courage. For so many of us, the number one thing that holds us back from talking about Jesus, if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, the thing that that holds us back is fear. Fear of being rejected. Fear of being seen as stupid or worse, dangerous. We're scared of that. I am. I know that you are too. How badly then we need to be like this early church and earnestly ask for boldness. They were one in heart and mind, they were loving and generous, and they were bold, boldly committed to being witnesses for Christ. Now, it would be easy to to look at this church, to note the things that we've noted about them, and to simply say, all right, guys, go go and be like them. And there's an aspect of that where, where that is true. They are an example for us to follow. But the third and final thing to point out about this early church is that they, like us, were entirely a product of and dependent on the Holy Spirit. You might have heard it said that the book of Acts could be called uh, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's because the Holy Spirit just, just gets to work all throughout the book of Acts. It's the Holy Spirit that is the one who is doing things. And the descriptions of the, the early church that we get in Acts, here in chapter 4 and at the end of chapter 2, these little cameos, they come right after accounts of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. So the early church that's described at the end of chapter 2 Uh, is um, described right after the day of Pentecost, the day when God's people were filled with the Spirit. And the result of that filling with the Spirit, or at least one of them, was the, the gathering together of a community that was united and generous and glad and devoted to fellowship and the apostles' teaching. And again here in chapter 4, we have another account of this group of people praying to God and being filled with the Spirit. And then comes another description, the description we've looked at today of what a community of spirit-filled believers looks like. One in heart and mind, generously sharing their possessions, testifying powerfully about Jesus. And all of that is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gathers us, the Holy Spirit that unites us, makes us one in heart and mind, causes us to love Jesus, love and care for each other, the Holy Spirit that brings about a growing desire to speak about Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who provides the boldness to be able to do that. The Holy Spirit works these things out in our individual lives and also in our life together as a church. And so with that in mind, there's something wildly supernatural and awesome about the life of the church. Do you see that? We see it here in Acts. 
It's a reminder for us that despite all the difficulties and imperfections of the local church, it's a place where the spirit of the living God is powerfully at work. And because of that, if you commit yourself to wholeheartedly belonging to and serving in the local church, you might just find that it's the most radical and life-changing thing you could ever do. Because you're getting on board with what God is doing. You're getting on board with God's vehicle for remaking a broken world, gathering people to Him, and calling others to join in on that. The church is a product of the Holy Spirit, and it's dependent on the Holy Spirit. What we see in the early churches is, is their total dependence on God, and that's expressed through prayer. They were always getting together and praying. Just like we see here in chapter 4 of Acts, they prayed for boldness. And it's not uncommon to uh, read or hear about churches throughout the ages, even today, who follow this same kind of pattern. I was listening to a podcast recently. A pastor was getting interviewed. He was a, um, a guy who's been a pastor in Australia uh, at a few different churches for several decades and he was saying that one of the first things he implemented at every church that he went to was regular prayer meetings, focused prayer meetings too. Sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes even three times a week, getting together, praying, focused prayers. He actually said someone came along and prayed for their grandma's broken leg or something, but he said, no, no, we're here to pray for the kingdom. But anyway, um, this guy saw over the course of his ministry a number of little mini-revivals. It's cause for us to ask the question, isn't it? Not that we can just push the prayer button and expect things to happen, but it causes us to ask the question, are we regularly praying together for oneness? Are we praying for a generosity of spirit? Are we praying for boldness? Are we praying for, for God's spirit to work among us in powerful and even unexpected ways. Alongside our, our structures and our programs and our teams, all of which are really important, we need to remember the absolute necessity of depending on God's Spirit by prayer in everything that we do. We won't ever be a perfect church. No such place exists. Even this early church, they had a bit of a honeymoon period and then things started to go downhill. We won't ever be perfect. But by the power of God's Spirit, we really can grow in unity and love and generosity. We really can be enabled to be a bold witness for Jesus in our individual lives and as a church. And we really can live to see God's Spirit do more than we could ever ask or imagine. The early church gives us something of a model of what that could look like, and we have the same Spirit of God that was powerfully at work in them. Pray that God's Spirit would be powerfully at work in us for our good and for His glory and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Great God and Heavenly Father, um, 
we thank you for this little portion of your word that gives us a little window into the life of the early church that's something uh, that we can learn from and aspire to. Lord, we confess that uh, as a church, as individuals, we've got so many faults and failings. But we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the forgiveness and the renewal that comes through Jesus and by your spirit. And Lord, we earnestly pray for more of that. Lord, please, by your spirit, renew us, knit us together as one, grow in us loving relationships and friendships, grow in us a generosity of spirit, grow in us deep conviction about the Lord Jesus Christ, a desire to love him and follow him and speak about him. Lord, do this, we pray, by your spirit, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.